All right. This morning, uh, we are, as Lauren said, getting into the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 is where we'll be. If you have a copy of the Scriptures and want to follow along, Daniel's pretty easy to find. If you open your Bible up in the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms. Work your way to the right. You'll see Proverbs. Pretty quickly, these big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then right after Ezekiel, the 12 chapters of Daniel. So it's pretty easy to find because Isaiah is like 60-something chapters, Jeremiah is like 50-something chapters, Ezekiel is like 40-something chapters, and then Daniel's just right after that. So Daniel chapter 1 is where we are over the next few weeks, Lord willing. Um, and I want to help us see the Old Testament context for where this book lands. You know, the Old Testament is not like a bunch of Aesop's fables that's just sort of this random smattering of different moral tales. No, the Old Testament is a narrative. It's a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and kind of an end. Uh, the New Testament actually is what really closes it off. Uh, but, but the Old Testament is a story. So I want to help us see the context of this story and where the book of Daniel falls within it. So I've got for us a handy-dandy Microsoft Paint seven-point steps to the entire Old Testament. It, of course, begins in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And the pinnacle of God's creation was us, man. We're said to be made in the image of God. And so as God's image... We're meant to reflect God's goodness, God's love, God's righteousness in the way we live. Sadly, tragically, we failed to do that. Instead of worshiping and living for God, we tried to be God um, and sin entered the world. We resisted His Lordship. Um, we worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator God. Things went wrong in all sorts of ways. But gratefully, God was not done with us. And in Genesis chapter 12, we hear how he spoke to a man named Abraham, step number two. And God says that he's going to reverse the curse of sin through Abraham and his descendants. And so Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And Jacob, Israel, holy moly, had 12 sons with a few different wives. A lot of dysfunction going on there, but nevertheless... God can use a crooked stick to hit a hole in one, and he certainly did that with Israel. They were broken from the beginning. Those 12 sons eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel, and because of a famine in the promised land, Abraham's descendants were forced to travel to Egypt, uh, where they were eventually enslaved by the Egyptian king, Pharaoh. And so God raised up a man, this is step number three, Moses. And Moses led God's people out of Egypt in this famous event called the Exodus. You can watch the movie Prince of Egypt on Disney+, Plus, or you can read the actual thing in the book of Exodus. I prefer you guys read, but nevertheless, it's in the movie. Charlton Heston also has the old one, Ten Commandments. There it is. That's the one I'm talking about. Step number three, Moses. So God's people get back to the promised land after the Exodus from Egypt, and then not too long after that, God establishes the Davidic monarchy. He establishes a kingdom under David. The people wanted a king like the other nations. And so he appoints King David to start this monarchy. David had a son named Solomon. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And it only took three generations of kings before the nation was divided in two. And there you see that's step number five. 
The nation is divided north and south. The southern kingdom was known as Judah primarily. That's where the capital city Jerusalem was. The northern kingdom mostly went by the name of Israel. Not too long after that, because of the nation's sin against God, because of their idolatry, God judged each of these two nations by raising up foreign powers to invade them. The northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria, and the southern kingdom was invaded by the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian armies not only went into Judah and destroyed the place, they went in and took the people captive and brought them back to Babylon. This is also known as the Babylonian captivity or the exile in Babylon. The Babylonian army went to Judah, uprooted the people, and took them back to Babylon. That's the deportation. And then the last step in the Old Testament is eventually some of the people start to return from exile. Uh, This is under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's really where the story picks up in the New Testament. God's people have been spread across the Middle East, but they've slowly started to make their way back to the promised land. But we are in this time of captivity. We are in this time of deportation. Daniel and his fellow friends grew up in Babylon. So let's pick up the story, Daniel chapter 1, and then we'll dive in. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And King Nebuchadnezzar brought the vessels from the house of God to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, of the people of Israel, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. And the chief eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths of your own age? So you would then endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You must not be from around here, are you? I wonder if you've ever heard that question before. Maybe it was when you were visiting a different city looking for directions. Maybe it was when you were visiting a different region of the country, speaking in your Michigander accent. Hello. <laughs> Maybe it was when you were visiting a different country at a restaurant, trying to order off what to you was a cryptic menu, and someone saw you or heard you in one of these instances and said, you're not from around here, are you? You're an outsider. In 2006, when I was 22 years old, I got to visit the country of Liberia in West Africa for six weeks. It was an amazing experiment, experience. And I remember walking through the city one day with one of my hosts, and we were talking and carrying on like you do, and suddenly he started holding my hand. Two men, not lovers, just walking around holding hands as we talked. This maybe, you can imagine, was a bit disorienting for me because I was an outsider. Friends don't do that in the States. I also remember a trip we made into a very rural village, and as I walked through the houses and neighborhoods, a three- or four-year-old toddler was walking past me, and when she saw me, she then sprinted in the opposite direction, screaming in terror, because I later found out I was the first white person she'd ever seen. I freaked her out because I was not from around there. I was an outsider. Being in a foreign place, living out as an outsider, can bring all sorts of peculiar challenges and odd encounters because oftentimes we don't know what to say. We don't know when to say it. We don't know what to do. We don't know when to do it. We don't understand the cultural setting and we struggle to interpret the culturally specific habits and traditions because we are not from around there. Well, luckily for me, in West Africa, my Liberian hosts were very gracious. They were patient, willing to help me acclimate and figure out how to get along in their culture. But what about when we're in a hostile culture? What about when we're in a culture whose differences cause us to compromise our convictions? What about when acclimating to a foreign culture means going against our consciences? Well, in the book of Daniel, God's people are involved in just such a situation. As I said, they've been deported 
They've been exiled away from the promised land. They've been taken into captivity. And their captors do not include the friendly faces and welcoming spirit of my Liberian friends. No, throughout the Bible, Babylon is presented really as the epitome of evil and corruption. So in Genesis chapter 11, it's in Babylon where the Tower of Babel is built. This tower was built in arrogance and resistance to God's Word. And then in the book of Revelation, the city of Babylon is the personification of evil. And it's even referred to as, quote, a dwelling place for demons. It's Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. And it's there that God's people are carried off to, this cesspool of a culture, at least as it regards morals. So they were for sure going to be outsiders, foreigners, strangers in this pagan, corrupt society. So now, now how do you get along? Not only are you an outsider in a different culture, but you're an outsider in an antithetical culture. Babylonian culture is not just different from their culture, it's against their culture. So how do we remain loyal to God in a hostile culture? Well, as we walk back through the first chapter of Daniel, we're going to see at least three directions that he gives us. First, he's going to say, recognize the cultural influences. Recognize the cultural influences. So not surprisingly, one of uh, in many ways, this first chapter sets up the rest of the book. We're told that the story takes place just after the deportation to Babylon. Je Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had been given into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim and his armies were no match for Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. So they besieged Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people, and then they carried them off into exile back in Babylon. And it's then that Nebuchadnezzar begins a process that can only be likened to what some have called cultural genocide. Now, actual genocide is when it's attempted to eliminate a culture by murdering all of the people in that culture. Most famously, this happened during the 1940s when Germany's Third Reich government killed millions upon millions of Jews. Hitler's plan was to eliminate this group of people by murdering all of its people. That's actual, literal genocide. But cultural genocide is different. The goal of eliminating a race of people is just the same, but it's done not by killing those people, but by forcing them to shed their native culture and then completely appropriate your own. So in order to do this, King Nebuchadnezzar calls for the best and the brightest of Israel's young people to be brought together. And he says in verses 4 and 5 that these young people are to then spend three years learning the literature and the language of Babylonian culture. These youths were probably 14 years old when they went into this enculturation program. He wants to reindoctrinate these young Jews into the Babylonian worldview. The king wants to steep these young Jewish minds in the morals and the philosophies and the myths of Babylon. Previously, Daniel and his friends, they had been schooled in the Torah. 
the writings of Moses and the culture of the Jewish religious life. Previously, they were taught to read and speak and write the Hebrew language, but now all of that Jewish culture is being killed and it's being replaced by the worldview and the language and the writings of Babylon. Furthermore, in verses 6 and 7, we find out that the king had the names of these young men changed. This is when we're introduced to Daniel and his three comrades, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and each one of their names indicates their connection to and their devotion to the God of their Jewish fathers. So Daniel means, my judge is God. Hananiah means, gracious is Yahweh. Mishael means, who is what God is. And Azariah means, Yahweh has helped, but not anymore. Nebuchadnezzar strips them of these names to indicate he's stripping away their God. He's stripping away their devotion to their God. And now they each get new names that include references to the Babylonian gods. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, and Azariah becomes Abednego. This is the king's attempt at cultural genocide, and it directs us that we must recognize the cultural influences that would likewise shape us. Maybe you guys have seen this happen to yourself or one of your family members. It has definitely happened to me. So throughout my life, I have slowly made my way northward. My home state is in Alabama. My graduate studies were in Louisville, Kentucky, and now my professional life has primarily been lived out in Michigan. Uh, at this rate, I should be in Canada in just a few years, <laughs> but I am actively praying against that. <laughs> but I have slowly made my way from my home to this frozen-over exile <laughs> in Michigan. And look at what you guys have done to me. So much has changed. For example, my language has changed. I no longer say y'all. I say you guys. I no longer eat much fried chicken. I now get to eat grilled or baked salmon. And even my name has changed. I used to have the southern double name, Charles Thomas, but now I've got the much more efficient, much quicker CT. So my Alabama self is basically dead. I've been in exile too long. But again, saying y'all or you guys eating chicken or salmon, other things, these are all pretty silly, pretty petty alterations to my life, and who really cares? But Nebuchadnezzar is not simply trying to alter or adjust these young Jews' lifestyle. He is trying to transform their culture. He's trying to transform their religion and their entire worldview. And church, we must recognize the way our own culture can have similar transformative effects on us. So this is just one example 
We could mention many of them, but just one example, by far the most radical shift in our culture that all of us are being forced to one degree or another to go along with relates to our understanding of gender and sexuality. It's way too long of a sentence, so let me say it again. By far the most radical shift in our culture that all of us are being forced to one degree or another to go along with relates to our understanding of gender and sexuality. So what's often referred to as a traditional sexual ethic, which includes the idea that sex is intended to be enjoyed exclusively between a husband and wife, that notion has been widely and passionately rejected by our broader culture. Just one illustration of this, and I share it just as an illustration, not to defame President Obama, but just as an example. In 2008, just an example of how fast this has all changed. In 2008, just 16 years ago, then-Senator Obama campaigned for the presidency not in support of gay marriage. In 2008, Senator Obama said he believed marriage was exclusively intended to be a, between a man and a woman. But if he said that now, he would get run out of town. He could never get away with that because radical changes have happened radically fast when it comes to our culture's understanding of gender and sexuality. Radical changes have happened radically fast when it comes to our culture's understanding of gender and sexuality. So this is just one example of an area in life where we need to be deeply immersed in the scriptures on this topic. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. Otherwise, we will get swept away by the tide of cultural pressure to shift our convictions on this topic for the sake of being accepted. We are outsiders. We are strange in this culture when it comes to questions of gender and sexuality. This is a lesson we're pulling from Daniel's experience recognize the cultural influences and have the scriptural spiritual discernment to know what's going on and how to respond. Again, gender and sexuality is just one area, one example. There are numerous others where we must be discerning, where we must be aware of how our broader culture would shape our minds and hearts. How do we remain loyal to God in a hostile culture? Recognize cultural influences. Secondly, remain dependent on God. Remain dependent on God. Now, it's worth noticing that to this point, these young Hebrew men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they do not resist the king. Yes, they had been forced out of their homeland and then forced into this Babylonian enculturation program, but to this point, they do not resist. Not the name change, not the education. They remain humble, they remain deferential, recognizing that all rulers and authorities are put in place by God, so they submit as long as they can. But eventually, they cannot. The king prescribes a certain diet for these Israelite youths, but verse 8 tells us that Daniel then resolves in his heart not to defile himself with the king's food. 
Now, we're not told specifically why the king's food would have defiled Daniel, but it's likely one of two things, maybe both. It could have been that the king's food had been sacrificed to idols, and there were many Jews who saw this food as corrupt and unholy, and so they wouldn't eat it. The other, and I think more likely possibility, is that the king's food given to these Jewish boys was not kosher. In other words, there could have been meats prescribed by the king that were against the dietary codes of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So for Daniel and his friends to eat this food would mean they were breaking God's law. And the dietary laws were meant to set Israel apart from the surrounding nations. So for Daniel to give in and eat these non-kosher foods would have been akin to saying, to heck with my Jewish heritage, to heck with the biblical commands, I'm all in for Babylon, I'm all in for Babylonian gods. But he doesn't do that. Again, we're told he resolves in his heart not to defile himself with the king's food. But notice further... When Daniel does have this conscientious objection, he does not throw a fit. Daniel does not angrily object or violently retaliate towards the king. He simply and humbly asks permission not to have to partake. Now, there's a lot for us to learn from Daniel here because I think it's pretty easy to notice that we have the habit in our culture of speaking really terribly about our elected officials who we disagree with. This happens on the right and it happens on the left. I remember a few years ago, for some time, one yard sign that became pretty popular in the region, and it simply said, our governor is an idiot, in reference to Governor Whitmer. Now, I'm not up here to defend Governor Whitmer, by any means, but I am saying that that kind of speech and that kind of attitude toward our elected officials is against biblical examples and disobeys biblical teaching for how we should approach rulers and authorities. And friends, know this, Daniel lived in a much more religiously and civilly oppressive culture than we do by far. Do you understand that? Daniel lived in a much more religiously and civilly oppressive culture than we do by far. And yet his example is one of humility and submission as long as he possibly can. And even then, when his conscience is disturbed by the king's command, he humbly asks permission not to have to partake. And you know what? Perhaps because of his humble attitude... He receives favor from this official that he makes the request to. But even though the official has sympathy for Daniel, the official still says, hey, I can't grant your request because the king will kill me. He's going to see you looking less healthy than all the other youths who do eat the king's meat, and then he's going to kill me for not making you eat the king's meat and getting all the calories you could. So now what does Daniel do? Is it now that he angrily, violently revolts? Is it now that he posts the nasty message on social media? No. He simply and humbly asks another official. Verse 11 says that he goes to the steward of the chief eunuch or official, and he asks him. And this time Daniel says, you know what? Test us. 
let us eat only vegetables and drink only waters for 10 days and see how we're doing. And the steward says, okay, only 10 days. That's a little safer ask. Let's try it. We'll see how it goes. So you see how shrewd and how wise Daniel is being. He first asks for full freedom to not eat the king's meat. He gets denied. So the, he then asks another official for just a 10-day testing period. He kind of softens the terms for them and makes it easier for them to oblige, which they do. And wouldn't you know it, at the end of those 10 days, the steward comes to check them out, comes to check out the four vegetarian friends, and they look even better than all the meat-eating youths. They look so much better than the meat-eating youths, the official policy gets changed to the vegetarian water-only diet that Daniel eventually asked for, initially asked for. Wouldn't you know it? And all this demonstrates what can happen when we depend on God. As we navigate the challenges of a hostile culture, Daniel does not try to take things on himself and force the change that he wanted to see happen. No. Instead, he showed humility. He showed patience. And then during this 10-day testing period, you got to know he was praying to God. He was asking the Lord, hey, these other guys are getting more calories than me. These other guys are getting more protein than me by eating meat. So I'm relying on you, God. I'm depending on you to uphold my body, to strengthen my body. So what does it look like for you to depend on God in a hostile culture? Here's one that's relevant and one that I don't mention lightly. We live in a 24-7, 365 society. Do you know that? We live in a 24-7, 365 society. Hardly anything ever stops for hardly any amount of time. We like laugh at Chick-fil-A because they're like the only thing that's closed on Sunday. We either laugh at them or we get angry at them if we want Chick-fil-A on Sunday. But either way, they are the only ones Hardly anything ever stops for hardly any amount of time. And so it has become increasingly difficult to set aside time for weekly corporate worship on the Lord's Day. When I grew up, the businesses my parents operated were completely shut down on Sunday. When I grew up, all the sports leagues I played in were completely shut down on Sunday and Wednesday. But increasingly, this is less true for all of us now. Businesses are open 24-7, 365. Sports leagues are operating 24-7, 365. So what do you do? What do you do when you're offered a job that requires you to work on Sunday morning? Do you take that job and miss Lord's Day worship? Or do you depend on God to provide for you and try to figure another job out? What do you do when your kid is offered a spot on a premier sports league that requires you to be at games and be at practice on Sunday morning, Wednesday evening? Do you join the premier sports league and miss Lord's Day worship and miss student ministry gatherings? Or do you depend on God providing that sport scholarship for your kids if they're supposed to get one? Try to figure another league out. Listen, I'm not saying these are easy questions. But far too often, we are not even wrestling with the questions. We're just going along with the flow of the 24-7, 365, whatever it takes to make the most money, whatever it takes to go the furthest in sports, take the Sunday job, join the Sunday league. I'm saying we need to at least wrestle with these questions. 
We need to at least recognize the cultural pressure that can often and does often cause us to compromise. And instead, we need to more and more depend on God like Daniel does here. In one sense, it would have been a lot easier, a lot more simple. Daniel, dude, just eat the king's food, okay? God will understand. Yes, we're breaking God's law, but hey, we're in exile. God will understand. We need to disobey him for just a little while. Don't make things so hard on yourself, Daniel. No. Instead, Daniel and his friends do the hard thing. They keep God's word even when it goes against the culture. And they depend on God. Finally, how do we remain loyal to God in a hostile culture? Recognize cultural influences. Remain dependent on God. And finally, receive His divine favor. Receive His divine favor. In these last several verses of the chapter, it really sets up what is to come in the rest of the book. The next several chapters, we'll see that Daniel is a close advisor of King Nebuchadnezzar and then also the two Babylonian kings who follow him, King Belshazzar and King Darius. Well, it's right here in these verses where we initially see Daniel being recognized and eventually elevated within the ranks of Babylonian government and society. He is recognized for his intellectual gifts. Verse 17 says that he had skill in all literature and wisdom. He's also recognized for his spiritual gifts. Verse 17 also says that Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. And all this intellectual skill, all these spiritual gifts, Daniel is sure to make the point, they find their source in God. Verse 17 says that as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. God gave them every good gift they needed in order to prosper in a foreign land. And in this way, Daniel and his friends foreshadow the person of Jesus and his experience leaving his heavenly home and coming to exile on earth. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, Luke records this story about Jesus' parents at one point losing Jesus when he was a relatively young boy, 12 years old, about the same age as Daniel up until this point in the story. And Luke shares about Jesus' parents eventually finding him. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 46, 47, and also verse 52. Luke writes, After three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see, Jesus is in this long line of prophets, like Daniel. Jesus is in this long line of prophets who receive the favor of God and the wisdom of God. And the Apostle Paul would later say, Jesus, in fact, is the wisdom of God. Jesus is God's wisdom fully in the flesh. And like Daniel, Jesus was remarkably shrewd in dealing with the rulers of his age. You think about his conversation with Pontius Pilate after he was arrested. So Daniel is in a long line of faithful and favored prophets, a long line that ultimately leads to Jesus. 
And so I want to close this morning by urging you to receive the favor of God, receive the Spirit of God by trusting in Jesus. Jesus not only grew in wisdom as a young boy, he is the wisdom of God in the flesh. Jesus not only spoke God's word as a prophet, he is the word of God incarnate. And in the same way that Daniel and his friends were elevated in the Babylonian government, Jesus also now has been elevated to the right hand of God the Father. After dying in our place, after rising from the grave, Jesus has now ascended to his throne in heaven. And when you trust in Jesus, you will have something the world can never take from you. The divine favor of God, the unbreakable love of God, and the unstoppable power of God through His Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter calls Christians aliens and strangers in a foreign land. So we are not from around here. We are strangers and aliens. We are outsiders. But through faith in Jesus and by the presence of his spirit, we can still prosper in a hostile culture. We can still be light to those around us. We can still bring glory to God in an otherwise very dark place. May the Lord help us and may he be glorified. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together and I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have laid claim to us. God, we are grateful that you have renewed us, given us a new identity in Christ. God, we all together declare that he is the one we pledge our allegiance to. Our citizenship first and foremost and forever is in heaven in Christ. We are not first and foremost Americans. We are not first and foremost Michiganders. We are not first and foremost whatever our last name is. We are in Christ and we pledge allegiance to the King of kings, to the Lord of heaven. Father in heaven, may we live out who we are in an otherwise hostile culture as strangers and aliens, as the peculiar people of God. May we indeed, Father, be the aroma of Christ. May we be the aroma of life, something that stands out, something that is different because of the love we have for one another, because of the truth we live by. God in heaven, we pray, make our witness effective. God in heaven, we pray, make us faithful. Make us aware of the cultural pressures, sneaky as they can be sometime. Make us aware so that we could live wholly unto you, the only King, the only God. We continue to worship you. We continue to praise you, expectant. You'll change our hearts and answer our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.